everyone. This is Craig Valentine from TurbulenceTraining.com and TTFatLoss.com. Here with another excellent call for you. I have managed to get Brad Pilon on the phone. Brad is the author of Eat, Stop, Eat. And, you know, to be honest, Eat, Stop, Eat is probably the most popular diet program used by winners of the Turbulence Training Transformation Contest. And we just had a new contest wrapped up, and so many of the people submitted their essays and mentioned that they used Brad's program. So, uh, Brad, welcome to the call. Hey, thanks for having me, man. And I would also mention that, you know, Brad's, you know, articles on nutrition are often very contrarian to what most people read in magazines. And so he is a very popular guest here on the Turbulence Training interview series. And so I put together a bunch of questions for him, questions of my own personal interest. And as well, we've gotten some from Facebook and from the membership site. And so we're going to cover a lot of topics. We're going to cover uh, dietary impact on inflammation, we're going to talk about sugar, we're going to talk about dairy, we're going to talk about cheat meals, and we're going to talk about actually minimizing how much work you put into your health and fitness program. Now, make sure you understand why we're talking about that because it's not to, you know, give people excuses not to train, but it is to show people how to do programs that are efficient and to eat efficiently and to basically get maximum results without completely changing your lifestyle, which a lot of people tend to think they have to do. So that sound about right, Brad? Absolutely, buddy. Okay, very good. So, you know, one of the things that I see come up so often is that uh, a lot of nutritionists are talking about inflammation from grains and whole grains and bread and from dairy. And so I want you to give us your opinion on how prevalent that is and, you know, what that means for fat loss programs. Oh, absolutely. Actually, I think it's an awesome question because it might have been, like, back in 2007 once when you and I were talking on the phone about, like, our predictions going forward. And I swear to you and I talked about how we thought inflammation would be, like, the next big thing in health nutrition. So it, it, it's kind of cool seeing that that's exactly what has happened. But it's, it's kind of unfortunate seeing that the um, – people's understanding of what inflammation is and isn't has uh, has become really muddled to the point where it's a very large scare word right now, I think. When it comes to things like, you know, bread and, and grains and, and sugar and just food in general, we look at inflammation and, and it gets pretty scary because when you look at the data, yes, there is an inflammation response to, to various foods. But there's a lot of things we have to consider. Um, inflammation in itself. Uh, when it's short-term and acute, can can actually be a, a good thing. Um, if you think of in that sense, that's part of what happens during exercise, right? There, there is a sort of a stress response from exercise where the body sees an increased amount of oxidant stress, and that used to be the buzzword back in the early 2000s. There's increased inflammation, but then the body adapts to that and gets stronger. Now, chronic inflammation, where you think of like a constant low-grade inflammation where all your markers of inflammation are, are two- to three-fold increased on a day-to-day basis, that's not a good thing. That's really bad. If you consider diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, those are diseases of inflammation. So there's two different kinds of inflammation we have to worry be worried about, chronic and acute. So what's up with, with bread and grains? Any eating, especially any overeating, tends to cause some sort of inflammation response in the body. I mean, that, that's sort of proven. And the more you eat, the larger that response is. I mean, a, a massive overeating day, you see increases in all kinds of markers of inflammation. Uh, interleukin-1, tumor necrosis factor alpha, um, leptin, adipokinines, all these things tend to increase as a response to just a massive amount of overeating because of stress on the body. But things like grains are interesting because we don't know, is this an allergic response? It doesn't really seem to be. Is it a, you know, a sort of self-taught response where um, your body just doesn't handle them anymore, kind of like a yeah, food aversion? It doesn't really seem to be that easy either. It seems to be in some subpopulations, large doses of grains uh, can cause a rather acute but, but high inflammation response. So that's a fairly low amount of the population that has that problem. For the rest of us, we tend to be able to handle grains just fine. And that the inflammation response is, is 
minimal at best, unless we're talking about massive overeating. So when it comes to inflammation in any food, we get right back down to the sort of old common sense data that the, the poison is in the doses, the doses in the poison. If you overeat a mass amount of any food, there's going to be an inflammation response. Everybody with that, you know, what constitutes overeating tends to be slightly different in each person. So it's just really knowing your own limits and, and what foods that you're, you're able to tolerate and which ones you aren't. Basically what it comes down to, I don't think it's a blanket answer for everybody there. So a lot of people are always recommending that, you know, you take two weeks off of dairy or two weeks off of wheat, and, you know, that will tell you whether or not you're sensitive to these uh, nutrients or whether you're intolerant of that. You know, is that still a good tactic? I don't think it's a bad tactic necessarily. Uh, again, getting back to the idea that there's, I mean, there's just foods that, that you're going to eat that you're not going to agree with. So if you're having GI problems, if something's just not right, it's not a bad idea to just take a little time and figure out what's going on. What you have to watch for is becoming obsessive compulsive at this and starting to think that every single food causes a bad response or, you know, constantly pulling things out of your diet and just never touching it again. Really, the goal of health, and as odd as it is, is to be able to eat with as much variety and eat crappy foods as often as possible and be healthy. Right? The, the idea of just living off of I don't know, green peppers, oranges, and certain meats for the rest of your life is rather boring. We want to be able to eat as much as possible as many different things. So if, if something is giving us some issues, it's a good idea to find out what it is and maybe cut back on it. But the idea of constantly doing that, you know, constantly ripping foods out of your out of your diet and just sort of never replacing them because you're always worried something's going to make you give you an upset stomach or, or make you feel bad. It's something you've got to be aware of that, you know, it may be, and this is kind of a hard pill to swallow, but it actually may be psychosomatic, right? You may be creating the stress of that food, the, the effect that food has in your body by simply being stressed out about eating that food. It, odd but true. You know, that kind of makes me think that, you know, I see all these people living to 75, 80 years old who, who smoke cigarettes. Yes. who literally put poison in their body, you know, inhaling it, burning stuff into their lungs On a every day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, multiple, multiple cigarettes. And here we are arguing amongst each other as to whether or not someone should eat a slice of bread. It just, you know, it really kind of gives you a better perspective on, you know, some people take a big, deep breath and relax and move on sort of thing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when, when people ask, hey, how bad is sugar for me? Right? And you, you kind of ask them back, like, well, how bad do you think it is? You're like, I, I think it's absolutely horrible. Well, then for that person, if, if, they're, if they have such a fixation on sugar being so horrible for you, if they eat it, the, their stress response, because they think they've eaten something horrible, is actually going to be worse than someone who doesn't care at all. It's really interesting how the mind and body sort of connect like that and how if you get really stressed out about something, you know, that something can actually manifest those effects in your body just via you know, you thinking it's going to do it. Really kind of sounds kind of hokey-pokey psychological stuff, but it, but it's in fact very true, and it happens with foods all the time. Um, that's kind of the basis of food aversions for, for anybody, and that's probably everybody in this call, who's at one time, let's say, high school, drank too much, unfortunately threw it back up. I, I know people to this day who can't touch peach schnapps, right, because they had that, that aversion. They had one bad experience with it, and now whenever they even go near that food, they, they feel like they're going to throw up. If you stress out about the food you eat, that, that, that stress manifests, right? So same, same idea. There's so many people who live for an extended period of time who drink regularly, smoke regularly, but don't stress out about the fact they, they drink or smoke, and that seems to be better for you than avoiding everything and freaking out over every little thing you put in your mouth. Yeah, we're going to come back to longevity in a bit because it's uh – you know, it's something that you're interested in, something I'm interested in, and, and uh, you take a little bit more laissez-faire approach to it. And I'm like always trying to like, how many, how can I eat 30 servings of fruits and vegetables in a day? So, <laughs> so, so we'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, but first, we're going to ask you the question which the entire Western civilization really needs to know the answer to, and that is, if you had to choose between having diet soda and regular soda. Which is the better choice for fat loss and health? A oh, horrible question. 
Uh, <laughs> everybody <laughs> needs to know this, Brad. Everybody, it's true. It's true. More okay. important than who's going to win American Idol. It is. That is very. In fact, most more people are listening to this call than are watching the final season, final episode of American Idol. Not so much, but it's a it's a tough question. So let's break it down. Which one is a better choice for fat loss? Okay. Well, that that one is easy. It, it is diet soda. Um, the arguments of the aspartame in it having negative effects on your ability to lose fat are greatly misconstrued data. Uh, a calorie-free beverage will help you lose fat better than a calorie-full beverage. Again, we're not talking health. We're just talking fat loss. Okay, so what about health? I mean, we have all these supposed issues with aspartame in health, and even though every diet cola now is not aspartame, a lot of them are, use many different sweeteners and combinations of artificial sweeteners, We'll just stick with the aspartame kind of story and lump them all together. Is there reason to be con- concerned? Um, yes, there's reason. Right? There, there's theory to back it, back it up. Is there hard evidence in humans with some of the outlandish claims they're making? Um, no. So does the theory and, and the mechanisms that the people are proposing for aspartame that, that do make sense, do they outweigh the potential benefits? To your health of losing 15, 20, 30 pounds, right? and that's where it gets kind of tricky. So, for health, the obvious answer is you know, neither. Water, water is probably the best thing you can drink. For fat loss, it's, it's, if you had to pick one, it's diet soda. But for health, if you had to pick one, it gets kind of tricky because it's almost as if I want to say to you, it's diet soda until you lose the weight, and then it's regular soda once you've lost the weight. Because I, I just believe that in terms of the health benefits of losing, losing 30, 40, I mean, some people lose 60, 70 pounds when they finally decide, I'm going to get in shape. Those health benefits probably outweigh the dangers of the occasional glass of diet soda throughout the week. Now, again, we're not talking what's better for you, 15 glasses of diet soda versus 15 glasses of regular soda every day. But just in terms of an occasional thing throughout the week, I have to go with diet soda until you've lost the weight. And then maybe regular soda once you're uh, once you're at the weight you want to be at. And then one last caveat there about the whole, because I know it'll get brought up in questions, is the high fructose corn syrup versus normal sugar. And that's a tough one too. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but the cola companies will generally switch back and forth between using cane sugar or high fructose corn syrup depending on the markets and the economies. So it would be kind of hard just to avoid all pops because of high-fructose corn syrup when there's a good chance that's not what you're consuming. It goes back and forth. But, yeah, so I guess my answer would have to be diet soda until you've lost the weight and then regular once you've lost it. And then, of course, you know, simply good judgment applies. Obviously, you don't want to be drinking either of them on a regular basis. So if, you know, you got a two-liter-a-day habit of either one, probably yes. not a good idea. And, and little things, too. I don't, I don't know where the trend comes from, but I was just in New York, and I, it might just be a Canadian thing, but I'm, I'm going to share the, the idea that Soda, whether it's diet or regular, is not a breakfast drink. It's just weird. So, you know, things like that. Maybe if, if it's your breakfast, if it's your drink of choice every breakfast, that the answer is neither switch to something else. So when you were in New York, people were drinking diet soda for breakfast? Giant big gulps at 7 in the morning. It is the oddest thing. And, I, you know, I, I have my odd food that I like to eat, too, and people think I'm weird, but that one to me is just really weird. So I get it. You know, it's it's there, but I would kind of view pop kind of like alcohol. You know, it's just if you're drinking it before two in the afternoon. It's just kind of weird. Fair enough. All right, so that uh, that leads us into sugar, and my mm-hmm. question is, how big of an enemy is this for fat loss? Okay, it's a big enemy. It is uh, actually a really big enemy, but only because of its abundance in our diet, right? Like. It's a very easy compound to work with. When you're doing any sort of food development, I mean, the, the sugar component of, of making anything, whether it's a packaged food, whether it's a pie, is is the easiest part. The protein and fats are a bit trickier, and that's why all of our foods have so much sugar in them. So to give you an idea, if, if you're someone who feels like your eating has just gone completely out of control, you know, and you're just you're just on a bit of a binge rampage here and you're eating more than you want, an easy way to fix that would be okay. I'm going to eat really, really low carb, and I'm going to not cheat, so I'm going to eat really low carb with no supplements, and I'm not going to do it high protein. And then try to go about your regular day. I mean, you basically say, by making that decision, 
you're limiting yourself to only eating in your home, right? Like, it's very hard to make a low-carb food choice that's unhealthy for you on a day-to-day basis by eating out, right? So sugar's bad only because of the amount of abundance it has. And you cut out sugar out of your diet, isn't it? Just that kind of example. You're really very quickly amazed at just how limited your food choices are. Now, sugar in itself as an actual chemical, it it doesn't have these amazing obesity-causing properties that people try to make it out to have. And I know people point to insulin and yell and scream about it, you know, the effect of insulin on fat loss. Just remember, we've been eating sugar for quite some time, and there's lean people in this world that eat an amazing abundance of sugar, and there are obese people who eat an amazing abundance of, of sugar as a proportion of their diet. Again, just like we talked about earlier, with sugar, you're just looking at the, the poisons and the dose. I mean, it's easiest to overeat sugar. Even though fat has the most calories per gram, sugar is just so abundant in everything we eat, and it's so abundant in the foods that don't go bad, our packaged foods, that it tends to be the thing that's sitting around in our house that's available when we've run out of other groceries. Right? So it's sort of the our general go-to when we've run out of healthy foods. So, okay, well, I'm going to grab the crackers. I'm going to grab the cookies or the bread or, or make some toast, right? It's, it's all the foods that are easy and convenient. And that's why sugar is, is important in our sort of our healthy eating and avoiding overeating lifestyle. But it's not because of its, you know, this horrible chemical properties it has in as much as its abundance in our society, in our, in our day-to-day lives. All right, good. Um, okay, so if it is not the biggest enemy... And I'm not even sure if you mentioned that it was or wasn't, but is there an enemy bigger than sugar in our fat loss, pro, you know, to our fat loss success? Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it's, the biggest enemy is, is calories. But since calories aren't really a thing, right, you can't pick up a calorie, you can't touch it, we have to look farther than that. And it, it really becomes the sort of mindlessness and apathy we, we have towards eating. We have this sort of addiction to food, and we, we, it's almost like a, a cult of food, right? We think that food gives us strength. We, we know that there's certain times we should eat and we shouldn't eat, and, and we get conflicting messages on whether we should be eating during our workouts or not during our workouts, or before or after, when we get up in the morning or before we go to bed, and we're just constantly bombarded by these messages to eat. And you're sitting in front of your TV and you're, you know, you're, you're eating your organic crackers with your hummus while watching commercials from McDonald's. And, you know, you're laughing at the type of people who eat at McDonald's because, you know, they're not healthy, but you are. But during that one commercial, you've already pounded back 300 calories worth of crackers and hummus. It just becomes overwhelming. So it's, it's the calorie and our, our inability to disassociate what we eat with our health. And as weird as that sounds, if we can just get over the idea that generally eating less is healthy and that you don't have to overeat healthy foods to be healthy, that's when we start to win. So not only is it the calorie that's this great enemy, but it's, it's our approach to our addiction or infatuation with it, thinking that we, we need to eat an abundance of healthy foods in order to be healthy, when in fact just eating less is probably more healthful than overeating but eating healthy foods. So it's 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 the calorie and it's the the addiction we have to to eating for specific purposes that seems to be our biggest enemy. Awesome. And so that kinda like leads me into we've had a few questions about the <clears throat> the fasting and stuff like that on mm-hmm. Facebook here as we've been going through. And so you know you simply are recommending just to minimize the calorie intake. Actually, there's a question I have before we get to that. And, and so many nutrition programs recommend this forcing of food after workouts, before workouts. I know you're kind of talking about that in your answer. Mm-hmm. Can you maybe simplify an approach for us that, you know, people are listening to, like, oh, you know, i got to get up and I have to eat breakfast right away because, because of the myth that it boosts your metabolism. And then, you know, that I have to eat right before training. Then I have to eat right after you know, my workout, even if I just do 30 minutes of, you know, off-day exercise or something like that. There's so much push, like you said, about eating, and, and a lot of it comes from endurance training, and I blame all the runners for it. Yep. So, uh, 
So uh, why don't you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. No. It, it comes down to um, intention. Right? So, so why are you working out is the question. And if your goal is to be burning body fat and building muscle, two best goals, but let's concentrate on the body fat one for now. Why are you following the approach of someone whose goal is completely different? Because a, a true performance athlete, endurance athlete, someone who's trying to win the Ironman, is, you know, wants to go to Hawaii, their goal is performance, right? They're feeding the machine. I mean, I know it's a giant cliche that's used, but let's actually break that down. They want the machine, their body, to burn the energy, the calories, from the food they're eating to keep them going longer, right? Most of us on this call, we want our bodies, the machine, to burn the calories stored in our body, the body fat, so we can be leaner, right? So it's the whole purpose of exercise, not counting building muscle, but if the whole purpose is to burn some calories, we want those calories to come from our body fat, because that's why we're doing it, right? I, I don't understand the idea of pounding back a shake pre-workout so I can go for a two-hour workout so I can burn off that shake. It's not my, my goal. I'd just rather not have that shake. My goal is is six-pack abs. And so I want to burn off this little layer of fat over top of those six-pack abs, which means I'm going to go work out, and I'm going to burn off those calories, the stored ones. I'm not going to burn off new ones. It's, just, it's taking advice from people with a completely different goal than you, right? So we have to realize that not all of health and fitness is, is inclusive to our goals. People who are you know, trying to perform at the top level in the endurance event are going to have different goals than someone who's like, I just, I just want a six-pack. Um, a sumo athlete, obviously, massively different goals than someone who you know, just wants veins running through their biceps. They just want to get as big as possible. Right? So you wouldn't take nutrition advice from, from them. So it's breaking down and really knowing your intention. I am in the gym today to do X. And if X is to you know, build muscle and burn body fat, why am I then force-feeding myself before, during, and after adding calories in that I eventually have to get rid of. That's what we have to think about, to stop and really investigate our specific goals. On this, on the flip side, you know, if you are an endurance athlete wanting to win you know, the Ironman, then listening to Brad Thielen will ramble on and on and on about how to lose weight by eating less. Well, that's not your specific goal. You know, if you don't actually care what you look like or how much you weigh, you just want to win that bloody Ironman, it, you wouldn't be taking my advice. So it, it's paying attention to your specific intentions to what you're doing and then matching up your actions to meet those intentions. And that's really what happens is that once you realize, no, my goal, I'm going into this gym and I, I'm going to burn some calories and I'm, I'm going to get rid of some of this fat and I want to get a six-pack, then you realize that the idea of eating, you know, 500 calories before, 500 calories during, and 500 calories after is, you know, 1,500 steps away from your goal. All right, so you're, you're pretty much like me. It's simple, you know, eat when you're hungry. Um, and then your, your program also includes the fasting. Now, there was a question, a couple of questions. So a couple of readers just asked, you know, people are always giving them a hard time because they don't understand. You know, you're simply introducing a new concept of fasting. Mm -hmm. It sounds so crazy to people. So, you know, what's, what is the general, you know, polite way of uh, trying to explain it to them, you know, that people you say that they, sh you know, you shouldn't do that, you're messing up your metabolism, as uh, Jesse on Facebook mentioned here, and, and Jordan asked also as well, you know, what's the number one argument for making people be more open open to the idea? And that's an interesting one, because, I mean, you can go back to the fact that, I mean, the, the, <laughs> the act of fasting, even for 24 hours, it greatly predates the health nutrition industry. Greatly, right? Like it, it, it's been around pretty much as long as, as we have. And, and people who have been fasting for cultural, religious reasons, um, they're, they're thriving as a society. They're doing just fine. So the the actual health evidence is abundant. But really, you're not going to make that argument. You'd, you'd seem kind of like a weirdo if you threw that out at them. Other things I like to do is, <laughs> one, is you don't call it fasting. The, the thing I like doing is when someone asks me if I want to go out for lunch or dinner, and I'm fasting. My answer is, you know, no, thank you. And they ask why. My answer is, I'm not hungry. And that kind of throws people for a loop because then you typically what people realize is, well, they're not hungry either, but it's lunchtime, so it's time to eat. 
And then you can get onto a bit of a different conversation there. You know, generally the if you're trying to lose weight and you're not hungry, why are you going to eat just because it's new? You know, you, you fall into maybe that conversation. Avoiding the term fasting because it's the one that has a negative connotation is probably your best bet. And really, it's a 24-hour break from eating. So if you just say, I'm not hungry, not eating right now, I'm busy, I'm doing something else, those should all be acceptable reasons not to eat, right? So, and by putting it back on the person, generally, at least you make them kind of think about why they're going out to eat. Uh, you're, you're never going to win the it's bad for you argument because it, it's kind of like a childish argument, right? The no matter what you argue back, the answer is going to be, no, 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 it's bad for you. So it's almost counterproductive and pointless to argue that one. And then, of course, the the metabolism one, I mean, with the exclusion of all of a sudden pulling out a deck of research papers to prove it, you're going to say, well, I heard Brad Dillon say it doesn't affect your metabolism, and they'll say, well, I read in somewhere it did, and again, you're not going anywhere with it. So just pull the, I'm not hungry right now, line, and then watch the other person try to rationalize their way into going to eat, and it actually becomes kind of a fun game, right? The, you go, well, I'm not really hungry, and then they'll pull the, it's lunchtime. You're like, yeah, yeah, I know, but I'm, I'm not hungry. And they're like, well, it's time to go eat. Then you ask them, are you hungry? And generally the answer is like, well, no, but it's, it's noon type of thing. It just turn into a bit of a game. It's the only thing you can do because trying to convince people that fasting is okay is – well, I, from personal experience, I will tell you, an uphill battle, which then, of course, to me, proves the, the shape of the health and fitness and general population's understanding of nutrition, right? If if you have to force people to go and overeat with you, it, 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 we obviously know something's wrong. All right, so another another question comes in from Fong Wood, and, and uh, they just want – there's a couple questions on here about how much – how many calories can you take in during a fast? And you, you kind of covered this and that, you know, they were asking about how much cream can you put in a coffee on a fasting day before you've kind of had too many calories. And, and I right. covered this before, but uh, maybe just share your thoughts on that again. Yeah, so it, it's a tricky number. I mean, with, with fasting, you're, you're trying to keep your own metabolic profile in the fasted state, which, of course, is giving you basically a, a useless answer. But the problem is, is that each person's, calorie tolerance to stay in that state is, is, is different. Is a piece of gum going to throw you out of fasting? No. Right? Is a little bit of cream in your coffee? No. But what's a little bit? And this is where it gets kind of tricky because the point of the fast is learning to use your mind like an on-off switch. Instead of dialing down the amount of calories you're eating or dialing up or worrying about, you know, what type of meat you're eating is a lean cut, etc. the point of fasting is to learn that you can go without food. There's a little okay, I'm not eating. And I'm, I'm, I'm just not breaking that rule. I'm not eating, and I'm going to do this. The problem with a little bit of cream is then it's a little bit more cream. You know, one piece of gum becomes one packet of gum. You know, a little bit of cream becomes cream, but just a little bit of sugar. And all of a sudden, you're doing these modified fasts where you're not really fasting. You're still getting benefits from eating less. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that it's either you're fasting or nothing at all. But the problem is you're not learning as much from the experience, right? You're still sort of a slave to calories. You're pulling the, I can't drink my coffee black, so I'm going to have a little bit of cream, rather than thinking, you know, why is it that I'm, you know, absolutely craving this drink that I can't even stand black, but I need to add some cream in it so I can drink it, It, you know, is something weird. I mean, I can drink this drink in another eight hours. I'm done my fast. But right now, I'm thinking starting to make excuses so I can add some cream into it, so I can drink it, so I can at least make it palatable. That's the kind of thing you're supposed to be learning from your fast. Like, why why am I craving this coffee right now at 3 p.m.? You know, is it that, you know, my workday is this boring right now? Is it out of habit? I have a coffee every day at 3. If if I just got up from my desk right now and went for a walk, would I be fine? If Or am I actually thirsty? You know, if I just went to the cooler and got a big glass of water, would this whole coffee thing be a non-issue? And I'm I'm talking to you from experience because I have a coffee problem myself. So um, I'm telling you that when you're fasting, and it's very easy. I've done the same thing, thinking I'm just going to get one cream in my coffee because I don't really like black coffee, um, especially being Canadian. Occasionally I get a very bad cup of black coffee, and it's horrible. 
But the thing you have to realize is the whole point, the whole benefit of fasting outside of the whole metabolism thing, outside of the whole weight loss thing, is actually being mindful and aware of of why you're eating. You know, I'm going right back to that sort of, you know, your intention and your actions. Now, now you're, because you're not supposed to be eating. So now when you want to eat, or when you want to have a little bit of something in your mouth, it's time to pay attention to why and then address it rather than sort of making this compromise, trying to see, you know, why is that happening and what could you do instead? If you do that, your ability to control how much you eat on the days you're not fasting is greatly improved because you've learned from your fasting days, okay, you know, again, 3 p.m., I'm not fasting. Now is when I normally go get a, a coffee and a donut, but I know now I'm not even hungry because this happens to me when I'm fasting. It happens to me all the time. This is just a learned habit. I'm, I'm going to break this. Every time at 3, I'm going to go get a glass of water or I'm going to go for a walk or do something different. Right? So it's I don't know what the exact calorie amount for everybody is, but I want you to, whenever you're fasting, fight the urge to sort of sneak in some extra small calories at any time. And instead of figuring out kind of sneaky compromises you can do, really stop and think about, you know, why are you trying to make this compromise in the first place and how can you use this information to improve how you eat on the days you're not fasting. Which is a really long way of saying I I really don't know the exact number of calories it takes to bust you in and out of the fasted state. It'd have to be like over 100 or something, you'd think. Yeah, I mean, the the maximum amount of insulin it takes – to sort of move you from that fasted state out of it is, is actually pretty low. So it depends on the person. Um, yeah, guys like Mike T. Nelson would call it your metabolic flexibility. I just call it how well you, you handle stuff. But for each person, it's so different. So since there isn't an answer, we look at the the other benefits of, or the other ways of approaching it, which is, you know, why you make this compromise. If you're going into a meeting and you're, you're like, man, I, I need a stick of gum here, uh, have the stick of gum. If you're just jonesing for a coffee, you're going to fall asleep at your desk and your, your, your boss is walking by your office every two minutes, put some cream in your coffee. I mean, it's, it's logical life decisions like that that I don't, you know, I, I don't want you to sort of mess up your life because you're trying to keep your calories at exactly zero. But if you're just putting cream in your coffee because you feel like having some cream, that's something that maybe you should learn from and then use on the days you're not fasting to improve how you eat. You know, a lot of people write in and say that you know, with your program, they have gained control over their food intake. And it really does, you know, the fasting day really does allow you to identify those problems yeah. and then become a master of your food intake and, and rather than being a slave to the habits and to the sugar and to, you know, the force feeding and all that type of stuff. And it really is a, a nice independence and freedom from from really stuff that, uh, that causes a lot of people a lot of problems. Oh, yeah, it's... It's really weird when you look at, as food is relationship, you look at how messed up some people's relationships with food is, right? How it's sort of, it's like an abusive partner. Like you, people getting used to the fact that they, they're not dependent on that or, or it, you know, they can use food on their own terms and eat it when they want to is very liberating for a lot of people, I think. Yeah, and you know, some of the most messed up abusive relationships we've ever seen are probably in some of the so-called healthiest people, you know, people that are on, in magazines, et cetera, that, uh, that really have a, a messed up relationship with food. Oh, absolutely. I, it, if you can't enjoy your food and if you define yourself by the food choices you make, if that, that's the number one thing you use to define your worth as a person, it's probably time to reassess your relationship with food. But And unfortunately, in the health and fitness industry, that's almost what a lot of people have been taught, right? It's like your, your value as a human being depends on how strict you can be with your eating. It's, it's really odd. Yeah, I mean, there's just almost religious responses to, to milk and to, to oh. bread products and to, you know, meat or not meat. It's it's a little ridiculous. Well, and, I mean, you can learn that from our, <laughs> the beautiful creation of Facebook and just how heated of debate you can get from a, a profile update that, that bashes or attacks someone's food beliefs, right? So, you know, not a an attack against, a, you know, a nationality. You know, you made a shot against Canada. People don't lose their minds. But you make a shot against low-carb eating or a shot against dairy or something, and, and it's just going to be a explosion of emotion, not, not you know, just sort of a logical argument of, well, 
I don't think you're right because, but these are emotional responses because it's food is, is a very emotional thing. And the way you define yourself as eating, if you've really tied your persona to a belief system wrapped around a way of eating, and if you rule out that anything else could possibly be acceptable, despite the fact that there's you know hundreds of different cultures in the world who all eat differently, and if you're not willing to accept that, then yeah, it really becomes a a hard, fast belief system that some people seem like they'll they defend to the death. Yeah, it's uh, interesting stuff, and that kind of leads us into the next question here that I want to ask you about. We'll try and we'll try and get through things a little bit faster because we do have a lot of questions here. But what is the truth about dairy for fat loss and health? And and you maybe want to mention uh, the differences of, uh, between countries in in their dairy, as you kind of did a an article on how our milk here in Canada is different from the milk in the United States. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, so getting back to our Facebook conversation, I, I remember once seeing a, a Facebook update about, it was actually about milk, and like I said, it was this massive emotional debate of name-calling and, and, and freaking out on, on the some poor guy's Facebook page. That I, I think he did the one post and didn't check it for two days, and there's like 120 comments. So, and I thought, okay, you know, enough of this. I've seen you post things on, on daily occasion on, on your blogs and then seen people kind of erupt on you, so I'm going to get down to the bottom of this. So, looked over the research on milk, and I'm like, okay, obviously there's, there's something more to this going on. So, I started looking into government regulations and then dairy industry regulations. And I'm looking at the regs going, okay, people on Facebook are crazy. Like, they, they plumb lost their mind because what they're saying happens, and I'm looking at the regs and the dairy industry and and information right in front of me that says this doesn't happen at all. I'm like, okay, obviously they're all crazy. And then I switched and looked at, being Canadian, that was all Canadian data, I looked at some American data and some European data. I thought, okay, you know, the the rules and controls and regulations you have vary from country to country. So that's when you start to realize, oh, there, there isn't a blanket response because geography makes a difference. You know, the, the type of milk makes a difference. Even the, you know, just within your geography, where you are, makes a difference. You know, with Ontario versus Alberta and Canada probably makes a difference in, in the quality of milk, at least in terms of what is considered acceptable and not acceptable. And then when it comes to weight loss, this is where milk gets really interesting. Because, well, milk in health, um, there, there's a large component that thinks that milk is the, the deadliest thing in the world. And then there's a fair amount of people who sit there thinking, you know, I, I handle it fine, thank you, and there's nothing wrong with me. Um, so we're kind of leaving health alone for a minute, and we'll, we'll talk to that in a second. But in terms of weight loss, it gets really convoluted because what people may not realize is there is a large vested interest in milk effect on weight loss. The first comes from the group who owns the patents on dairy-derived calcium for for the purpose of weight loss in the human body. So there are people who have a vested interest in intellectual property they own for the next, I don't know, 20 years or whatever, since whenever they got that patent approved, to prove that dairy, and specifically the calcium from dairy, can aid you in weight loss. I mean, they've invested the however tens of thousands of dollars it takes to put a patent application together, put it into the process, defend it when you have to, and finally go through your whole due course. So we have that group that just wants calcium to work. Then you have the dairy industry, right, who probably looks at, you know, being a weight loss product not a bad idea. I mean, those guys make a lot of money. If we could tie in a weight loss thing to our product, we'd be rocking. So they're not exactly opposed to the idea of, of milk being a weight loss ingredient. So does the data bear out? I mean, does just drinking four or five glasses of milk, will that cause you to drop all your fat and be, you know, shredded and beach ready? And the, the answer is Probably not, and the reason I'll give that answer is because I have yet to find a food with, even if it did have mysterious fat-burning properties, its effect at fat-burning would never outweigh its caloric content. So if a glass of milk has 100 calories in it, I don't think there's any evidence anywhere to suggest that one glass of milk can cause you to somehow burn in excess above and beyond what you normally burn, of 100 calories. So it just comes common sense like that, where you know, eating foods for the purpose of weight loss, and those foods contain calories, becomes kind of a redundant process, right, where you're, you're eating 
calories so that you can lose calories, it generally doesn't take, tend to make sense. So in terms of weight loss, I don't see a large benefit. In terms of health, and the interesting thing about health for everything is that people love to talk about it, and no one likes to measure it. Right? So if you've had blood work done, and you know all your measurements are excellent, and you drink milk on a regular basis, and then you cut out milk, and you have blood work, and your numbers are the same, and you enjoy milk, there doesn't seem to be a reason to cut it out. The problem is, is that so few of us actually go to the doctor, you know, have blood work done, know where our numbers are, and then can make assessments from there. We just sort of argue back and forth on this vague term of what health is without an actual definite metric to work from. So for most people, dairy can, can fit into your lifestyle unless you have an intolerance or an allergy or, or something else. But in general, it can fit in. It's just, again, most you know, most likely, just like everything else, the dose would be in the poison. Right on, then. Okay, your opinions on cheat meals versus cheat days. So the meal versus the day. Okay. Yeah, I mean, um, in general, like... No, do we have to force these cheat meals on us? You know, someone wants to not have a cheat meal. Is it going to make a difference? Is it, you know, is, you made a great point of you can't really eat yourself into a faster metabolism. You know, that's my, you know, every time I hear somebody say that, you know, you have to have breakfast to get your metabolism revving, I mean, that's, that's just ludicrous. I mean, yeah. your metabolism is going regardless whether or not you eat breakfast. And if you eat yeah. 400 calories, your metabolism is not going to consume all 400 of those calories. So, totally. well, Do you remember, uh, I don't know how many years ago, we did those uh, diet versus exercise videos? Yeah. Okay. Well, they kind of stuck with me because I've been trying to figure out, I'm like, I wonder, I wonder if there's an upper limit. Like, how many calories can you actually burn in a day? And I've been, like, toying with this and looking through it, and I finally found awesome research from, of course, the military because, you know, it's easy to do awesome research when you practically own the people involved. And I looked at the data on Marines going through, like, the hardest part of their training, this, this crazy exercise called the crucible exercise, where they basically are, you know, imagine football two-a-days, but for 54 hours straight with almost no sleep. These guys get up to a level of about 40 calories per pound of body weight. It's kind of like seems to be like this topped-off level of calorie burning. So about 8,000 calories if you're a 200-pound guy. There you go, yeah. So... And, and keep in mind, this is someone doing, like, just insane exercise for 22 out of a 24-hour day, right? So it's not like they just did a really hardcore workout from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. after a day at work. Like, you know, they they were doing insane stuff for an entire day, and that's the number they got to. That same number has been found, you know, roughly something near it or under it in, like, um, the people who fight forest fires, they just, you know, full days of, of firework and cutting down trees and brush removal, it's been found in other militaries. So it's a general number we can work with. You know, it may not be exact. It may be 41. It may be something else. But let's just stick with that one number. So I'm not anywhere near 200, but let's just pretend I am. That gives me 8,000 calories. Force feeding myself on a cheat day, I can get to 10,000. I mean, it would take effort. I wouldn't feel good. Um, you know, I might need a couple coaches making me just <laughs> pound back the food, but I could do it. So in one day, I can overdo the amount of calories that I know I could burn, especially since if I'm sitting down eating 10,000 calories in a day, I'm not out, you know, sprinting with 80-pound backpacks on and doing, doing combat situations like these Marines would be, right? So in no way am I burning 8,000. Now, if we look at the thermic effect of food, that whole idea of eating food, can cause this like massive increase in your metabolism because of the process of digestion. Okay, well the highest reported number I've ever been able to find on the thermic effect of food was, and this is the highest, was 27% of the calories consumed. Okay, well crap, so if I eat 10,000 calories, I still have like 7,000 to deal with type of thing. So it's not like you're just sort of magically burning it off. No food can cause you to burn more calories than you consume. It just doesn't, doesn't happen. Then, if we get back to what you and I just talked about earlier, about inflammation and acute inflammation responses. Yeah, a little bit of inflammation, you know, that sort of acute inflammation response has a long-term benefit if just through the general adaptation syndrome of your body, you know, a little bit of stress, your body learns to adapt to it. 
But if you overload that stress, it's now a negative thing. So is the oxidant damage and inflammation you're causing, is it at a level where it's like, ooh, when you take that away, it's actually a benefit? Or is it, oh, I'm doing some damage here type of thing? So I don't want to rule out the concept of, of cheat meals. No way. Because I like them. And a cheat day, I don't want to rule out because they happen. Weddings are a perfect example. I don't, I don't care who you are and what amazing willpower you have. It's almost impossible to make it through a wedding without overeating. So a cheat day is going to happen. It's just no way around it, birthdays, weddings, etc. So I don't have any issues with it. Is, is there even a possible benefit to sort of letting loose and in, enjoying food, especially if you've been dieting hard? I think psychologically, absolutely. But can you turn something that's really beneficial, like to sort of letting loose and eating a little bit extra once in a while, to something that's actually negative by force-feeding yourself to a point where you feel sick? And I think that last sentence kind of sums it all up. If you're feeling sick, your body is obviously telling you something, right, that, that maybe just stuffing food in yourself when you can't eat anymore might be counterproductive. And even if it did have sort of short-term effects on what you see on the scale, are there long-term effects we should be concerned about? So... The bottom line is I like cheat days. I have no issues with them. They're going to happen, regardless of whether or not you're planning them. You know, new old friend comes in, you know, flies in. You haven't seen him in a couple of years. You guys go out. It's probably going to end up being a cheat day. Weddings, birthdays, those sort of things. So I wouldn't freak out or stress out if they happen. What I wouldn't want to do is is continually force feed myself uh, in situations where I just don't feel like it or I don't want to or it's not the right day, you know, planning it that harshly. Um, so if I had to pick cheat day versus cheat meal, I'd say both are fine. Um, you know, is there, are there benefits? There may be. Are, are there negatives? Possibly. So the issue just becomes, is it something you should be forcing on yourself? If it's something you're enjoying, a nice break, uh, great. But if it's something you're forcing, where you're, you're feeling sick, you don't want to do it, but you're forcing it still, I think it's when you have to sort of stop and reconsider your actions. It gets back down to intention and what you're doing, and then possibly even gets back to the old doses and the poison, right? Have you gone beyond what is beneficial and now starting into a negative situation? Okay, cool. All right, next question uh, has kind of come from some questions we've seen on uh, Facebook here. People just want some general information on what you've seen have been good ways of combining exercise with fasting. That's a question from Brad Henry. And then another yeah. person on Twitter asked, you know, is it a bad idea to schedule a fast day after endurance exercise? So, you know, a very long endurance exercise session. They, they mentioned a 60-mile bike ride. So, wow. you know, you probably, you probably heard a whole bunch of different stories of people exercising under fasting conditions or people, yeah. you know, doing their fast before their workout or doing yeah. their fast after. Is there any general uh, way that seems to work really well mentally for people and does it change your results at all and, and what have you done in a fasting state? I know you were going to do some competitions or something but I don't know if you got around to doing that. Yeah, I did the powerlifting contest back in uh, in June. It, it really depends. It, just, it comes down this is purely psychological and it's when you get your best workout is when you should be working out. I mean, even when you're not fasting. On a, on a normal day if you have better workouts in the morning than at night don't want anybody to tell you that you should be working out at night. Like it all depends on when you feel your best, when you have your best lifts, and when um, your mind is in your workout. I mean, it's easy to go through your workout almost mindless, numb, and apathetic, just sort of going through the motions. But when you're actually there and aware, and you know what you're lifting, why you're lifting it, what you're trying to accomplish, you know, when your brain is that into your workout, that's when you want to be there. Same thing when you're fasting. If if you're like me and, and you just, just live for working out fasted, then obviously that's what you should be doing. If you dread the concept of working out on your fasting days, just don't. I don't think, I think arguing over the, you know, taking advantage of the increased growth hormone for, during fasting versus taking advantage of the insulin when you're not fasted. I mean, we're dealing with minutiae that's not going to make real world difference. It, it's fun stuff to debate, you know, it, it's great stuff to maybe do your, your graduate thesis on, but is it going to make a difference in how you look real world? It all comes down to when are you getting your best, most successful workouts. I, when I did that powerlifting contest, it was fantastic. I loved lifting fasted, but I've always liked it. I don't, especially deadlifting. For some reason, deadlifting on a full stomach is just never a good idea for me. Same with squatting. So I'm more mentally with it, 
when I'm fasting, just me, you know, and I don't think there's any sort of metabolic explanation, just that's sort of when I'm in the zone for lifting. It's not going to affect your, your immediate strength in any way, shape, or form. At least for me, it, it doesn't, and it shouldn't for you unless it's psychological. When it comes down to endurance activity, again, it just comes down to intention. You know, are you, if you're, obviously if you're doing a 60-mile bike ride, you're not doing it for fat loss. You're a biker, right? So if, if your goal is, okay, I want to bike again for 60 miles in two days, well, then the fast in between is probably not in line with your goal. If you're going to bike again the following weekend, it does not matter if you threw in a fast right after your bike because by the time that next weekend comes around, you're going to be nice and recovered and you're going to be able to do your bike ride regardless. The whole idea of refueling your body and the need to eat directly after your workout for glycogen repletion, that sort of thing, is based on the concept of people who have to perform at a high level again in a very short period of time. So if you did a massive bike ride on Sunday and you're not going again to until Thursday or Friday, throwing a fast in afterwards, not a big deal. However, you know, again, if, if your goal isn't fat loss in any way, shape, or form, then then just do whatever allows you to perform at your best, right? Keep keep your actions in line with your intentions. Awesome. Okay. Um, oh, what, tell us a little bit more about the powerlifting contest. So you did it completely fasted. When did you start your fast? When did you end your fast? And how were your results uh, in an absolute and relative term? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, I'll just walk you through the whole thing because it's kind of fun. So um, yeah, I, I remember I was working on that new – that new program I was designing, and I needed some sort of way to, some sort of metric at the end to figure, okay, you know, did I actually get stronger with other people <clears throat> judging my list? So I'm like, yeah, I'll just do another powerlifting contest, right? So I decided to do a push-pull. It was, like, in June, and I thought I'd do some interesting things. I'm like, I'm going to diet down for the powerlifting meet. Like, I'm actually going to try to get like, lean for this meet. One, so I could get into a lower weight class, and two, just to disprove that whole, you gotta eat massive and get fat to get strong. So, exactly what I did, I think on my, um, I, I dropped water to make the, that weight class. So I think I weighed in to get into the 165 pound weight class and I was about 169, 170 when I was actually doing my lifts. I did my lifts at the 22, 23 hour mark of my fast. Um, lifts went, Almost exactly as planned. I had uh, two snags. One was the um, the there's a very strict technique in just terms of how to go about a lift. And I didn't. I mean, I mean, I really didn't know this. So the minute you've got three chances to, to do your lift, so you get three attempts at the deadlift, and in this case, three attempts at the bench and the squat and the one I was doing. What I didn't know was the very second, basically, you're done your lift. You got to go and tell the referees what your next lift is going to be. And then, this is embarrassing being Canadian, but all, all the lifting weights are done in kilograms, and I'm a pounds kind of guy. So I always had to go back and like find a calculator and figure out what my left, next lift was going to be. And yes, I know it's times 2.2 and it should be easy math, but it, it just, it wasn't, has nothing to do with fasting, just has nothing to, be, something to do with me being bad at math. So the deadlift went really well. Um, I pulled 365 on my last lift, which was obviously by the way I pulled it, much less than I'd be capable of. Um, but it was a, a lift I was easily happy with. So that that went fine. The bench press, I actually had a little bit of trouble with. And this was weird. This had nothing to do with, like, fasting or feeling tired. The pause at the bottom of the bench press, you know how in a, in a powerlifting contest you have to unrack it, to bring it down and pause on your chest and then push it back up. And that pause is, I swear to you, less than a second. But it's odd because when you're training on your own, you're in control of how long that second is, so you bring it back down your chest, and you're fully aware of when they're going to say go, and you push it up because you're the one saying go. At a meet, <laughs> you don't have control. Someone else is saying it. So if it's a split second longer than you think it should be, it's, it's like a momentary moment of panic where you're not sure if you, did you miss it, what's going on, or what are they waiting for, sort of thing. So on the bench press, I only got 285, and it, that was a bit of a disappointment pointing event for me. I, I really thought that it was, you know, I was going to get my my last attempt, which was up in the, the low threes, but uh, I just, just sat there a split second too long. So lesson there is for anybody who's ever thinking of doing their, their first meet, 
is you got to practice that pause, and it can't be you practicing it. Someone else has to be counting that pause for you. Someone else has to say go, because otherwise you always know when it's coming. You're always anticipating it. And then uh, the other thing is if you, if you even thinking about doing a meet, I highly suggest it because it's just a really cool experience. Uh, I have done powerlifting meets now. I've done bodylifting, sorry, bodylifting, bodybuilding competitions. And I can really say that the, the type of people you meet, you know, and just the experience of doing it, it is worthwhile. So and this was my first one. I mean, I showed up. I didn't have any of the equipment. I didn't. I did the whole thing in, like, I didn't have a belt. I didn't have wraps. I didn't even have a singlet. I had to go and find one. I, I didn't know almost, you know, any of the rules. I even got in trouble. I guess you can't put walk up and watch them put the plates on. The vents, like, you have to stand off in the corner. So I, I made mistakes left, right, and center. I was basically the comic relief for the entire event, I think. But, uh... But all in all, it went great. The um, the strength was exactly where it was, where I expected it to be, especially considering, you know, like, I, I proved again to myself that you can diet down, you can get lean while getting stronger, and uh, you can lift really, really well, you know, at a high level of, of concentration, well into the 22, 23-hour part of your fast. So I think it was a great learning experience, and it was uh, sort of a, a fun experiment to do. Pretty cool, man. Really cool. All right, uh, a couple more questions. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I find people always want to do is they always want to do a diet and fast at the same time. Yeah. Can, can you just explain to people that fasting, I mean, at least from my understanding of your work, is that it should not be combined with anything else. It's you eat normally, you don't force feed yourself, you don't let yourself go hungry, you just eat normally, and you do your program. Yeah. All right. So this this is an easy one, and it's the simple sort of, you know, <laughs> hare versus tortoise type of thing. I know you expect weight loss to be like effortless and massive, and your weight constantly going down. And the first couple times you do a fast, especially because the most likely the massive anti-inflammatory effects of, of, of a single 24-hour fast, and the fact that you're getting rid of a whole lot of food in your system, um, you're gonna drop decent weight on your first fast. It's a great feeling. Your second fast, same thing. Your third fast, your fourth fast. And all of a sudden, it's it's going to slow down a, a little bit because now you're just actually losing body fat. I mean, you're in a groove. And whatever sort of extra weight you're carrying, not fat, you've gotten rid of, which is still good weight to get rid of. Don't let anybody say that whole, it's just water bullcrap because any extra weight you're carrying, you shouldn't be carrying, whether it's inflammation or extra water, whatever you want to call it, is a good thing to get rid of. So now you're just losing fat, and, and fat comes off at a fairly slow pace. No matter what anybody tells you, you know, it, it, it's difficult to make that large of a calorie deficit that you're actually going to drop five pounds of fat in, you know, a week, especially if you're already relatively lean. And then there's the issue, especially for women, because um, the way your hormones change throughout the month, where you're going to one day, and everybody's going to do this, so I'm going to warn you now, there's going to be that one fast where you're going to start at a weight, and you're going to end 24 hours later at like a half pound above that weight. you know. And it just has to do with, with your body's ability to hold water and that sort of thing. And, again, your hormones going up and down and that sort of thing. This is generally people go, oh, my God, i got to start dieting on the days I'm not fasting. And then they just start all of a sudden crushing everything in, where it's I'm fasting, and on the days I'm not fasting, I'm, I'm only eating, you know, celery sticks, and then I'm just going to do after that some protein. And it just becomes this, like, crazy crash diet, which admittedly is going to work for a week or two, but that's not the goal of Eat Stop Eat. The Eat Stop Eat is not a super fast, how last long can I lose, sorry, how fast can I lose fat kind of diet. This is a lifestyle change that let you lose weight at a reasonable pace and then stay lean the rest of your life. That's the goal. So this crash diet approach of dieting severely Avoiding foods you like and fasting is the opposite of what I want. Right? I'm trying to give you a move away from obsessive-compulsive eating, a move away towards lack of freedom and lack of variety in eating, and giving away you can eat foods you like while still losing weight or maintaining a body weight. That's the goal of Eat, Stop, Eat. So I do not want you overeating in between periods because this fasting is not this like giant you know, free pass that means you just crush food on days you're not fasting. I obviously don't want that. And... Even during the times you're eating, I want you to be mindful and probably eating, you know, a little bit less than you would if you're just not paying attention at all. But I don't want you um, 
in a situation that you could consider um, purposeful self-punishment by not eating on the days that you're not fasting. Because otherwise, you just, again, it's not an enjoyable process, right? You're creating something that's not sustainable, that's not enjoyable, and that's just a bad spot to be in. So always remind yourself that the, the goal of Eat, Stop, Eat is to create a situation where on the days you're not eating, you're eating a little less than you'd like to, but you're eating the foods that you enjoy, right? So I don't think there's a day or two that go by where I don't have some form of chocolate in my system at some time. That's kind of the point of Beat Stop Eat, is you eat the foods you like while losing weight or maintaining the weight you like. It's not about, you know, massive denial during your fast than almost massive denial when you're not fasting, that sort of thing. That kind of along the lines of what you're thinking? Yeah, but I think more along the lines of the questions I get these days is, you know, people want to have a 1,200-calorie day diets on their off days from Eat, Stop, Eat and fast on top of that. And, you know, so really they're doing a diet plus fasting. You know, they're doing low-carb plus fasting. And, and really that's, from my understanding, not the point. Yeah, no. I mean, 1,200 calories, like not unless you're five foot tall, right? <laughs> like a, if, if you're a... a Five eight, five ten, six foot person. That's that's low, very low. And well, that that amount of calorie intake, you know, with the right work, could be, you know, reduced calorie intake with optimal nutrition. The point of these stuff is you don't have to do that. Right? So yeah, exactly what you said. You, you shouldn't. You should find a nice healthy balance where your fasting is allowing you to eat, quote unquote, normal on the days you're not fasting. All right, last question. Uh, we didn't get through all of them, so we'll have to do another call sometime soon. But I just want to skip ahead to the what's the best nutrition and exercise strategy for increasing longevity? So, you know, people on here not only want to be healthy, they want to, you know, live to be 100. I mean, I want to live to be 100 and something. And I know you think that might be crazy, but it's just because I, I really just want to know how the the story turns out, to be honest with yep. you. So, yep. so uh, what's what's the best strategy? All right, so this is it's a good question, and I've you know I've known a, a centurion in my lifetime, and Izzy was 101, and then on all on Heather's side, not my side, and then Heather's rest of her family were like 98 and 97. So I've seen people live to extended periods of time, and so if I just had to go off of their experience, I'd have to tell you the answer is gin and tonic, right? But it's obviously <laughs> it's obviously more more evolved than that. But then I wonder, is it like is it really more evolved, or is it a factor of how well you handle stress. And I'm not talking about stresses in like you have a crappy job stress. I'm talking about all the stress you place on your body, whether it's um, the stress from massive overeating, the stress from just, you know, the world's hardest exercise program. Then, of course, the other stresses, right? The stresses from relationships, the stresses from work. And how how flexible you are with all these things. So I think it might come down to Developing flexibility, both metabolic flexibility and physiological flexibility, making sure that you're conditioned enough that if you have to sprint for a bus, you can handle it. Then making sure that you're flexible enough in your mindset that if something bad happens at work, you can handle it. You know, the the massive million-dollar mess-up that happens in your company that you look at it and you go like, oh, that, wow, that was completely my fault. To how you handle that, right? To how you, how you handle the stress of, of, of a fight with a good friend. All these sort of stresses and how your body sort of is flexible enough to cope with them, so psychological and physiological, your long-term ability to handle these things is probably going to end up being your, your best indicator of longevity. But, you know, some of that is learned, right? We learn how to handle stressful situations in our lives. But some of it is, is physiologic as well. And the dealing with that sort of thing may come down to Simple, simple measurements of what does your body look like. And I, I know that sounds vain, saying that, you know, what your body looks like is going to be a great determinant of how long you live. But consider the fact that something as simple as the ratio of your waist circumference to your height is one of the best predictors of your risk of, of cardio and metabolic diseases. Something as simple as just a measurement of your waist relative to your height. You add in a couple more measurements. Now you're looking at, you know, your, your shoulder width or circumference and your waist. Now you have a measurement of the amount of musculature you're carrying, the amount of body fat you're carrying, 
and how this relates to tons of risks that could end your life prematurely. You know, I, I think it really comes down to the fact that we call it A, we call it getting in shape for a reason, right? There is a specific healthy shape, right? You, you look in and walk in through a mall. You can instantly pick out people, that guy worked out, that girl's in great shape. Ooh, those two do not, right? So there is an immediate identification with what a healthy body looks like. That look has been with us for hundreds of years. We can trace it back through art, right? The, the way that a warrior or a god or a fighter is sculpted or painted or drawn, it's relatively fixed. It, it's a definite look of health and vitality. When we drew or painted or sculpted immortal people, so gods, people who, you know, in terms of longevity, you know, they wrote a book on it. They supposedly lived forever. They had a very definite adult, muscular, lean build. So long, longevity may be a combination of your ability to cope with stress and the choices you've made in your life to maintain a body, a human body, in its proper shape. You, you go to the bodies exhibit in Las Vegas or New York or wherever it is right now, and you see those, you know, those human bodies with all the fat and skin removed. It's just sort of the, the skeleton with the muscles on it. And, and you see human shape. There it is. And it looks a lot like a superhero. Every single one of them, right? It's, the shape is there. So if you consider the fact that a lean body that's athletic, that moves, has a certain shape to it, and that shape allows for a certain amount of metabolic and physiologic flexibility, you combine that with a, a mental attitude that's a whole bunch of flexibility in terms of how well you cope with stress, I think that's what's going to drive us with that in a really awesome medicine system, is what's going to drive us into living probably well past 100, to tell you the truth. I think it's, it's possible. I'm not really buying you live to a thousand thing yet without severe medical and genetic manipulation. But the live past 100 thing and be um, healthy and mobile and living a high quality of life uh, is something that you and I will see in our lifetime, for sure. So, but I think those are the tricks to it, is a certain amount of flexibility and, and keeping within a shape that, I mean, we've been told for centuries is a, is a shape of health and longevity. Simple enough. So, uh, either less than you would like to eat, move more, lift some things, and then learn how to relax and learn how to be stress-free. That's the foundation of living as long as possible. Solid stuff, man. I appreciate that. Um, so thank you very much, Brad. We appreciate uh, you being on the call. We've got at least another enough questions from Facebook and Twitter and from my questions that we didn't get to. We'll do another call uh, fairly soon. So that's yeah, we have all right, and we appreciate your uh, powerlifting story. That was pretty cool. Um, yeah, so, I would uh, do another, but not for a while. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, uh, anything else you want to add before we go? No, that was great. I mean, if you uh, if you want to touch on some of the other questions, just let me know, and we can do it at a, at a later time for sure. Awesome. So thanks, everyone. Uh, if you want to learn more about Brad's stuff, obviously you can check out his eatstopeat.com program, uh, but his blog is also very informative at Brad Pilon, B-R-A-D, T-I-L-O-N.com. And, of course, you can find them on Twitter and Facebook and all of those uh, Internet websites. And so I will uh, I will get this call out to everybody soon and get a transcript, and, and we'll uh, share this great information. So, Brad, thank you. Thank you, man. All right. And, everyone, this is Craig Valentine from TurbulenceTraining.com. We'll talk to you soon with another great interview. Bye-bye.